Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. I have been way more comfortable talking about myself as being more spiritual than religious. In fact, if I'm honest, I tend to lean in that direction more often than not, in part because there's just a lot of baggage tied up in religion, a lot of baggage tied up in religious custom. There's a lot of baggage tied up in being connected to an institution, and I know you don't need to hear me say that. I'm sure uh, you've experienced some of that as well. I mean, especially even now in our Methodist church, you know, we're in the midst of deciding about church splits and who's staying and who's not and what does that mean and how do we advocate for inclusion within an institution that's a global institution with many different sets of values and customs and ideologies sort of wrapped up in it. It can be exhausting to think about how we are attached to religious institutions. And more than that, it can even be exhausting to think about, you know, how do we know what's right and what's wrong, right? Like, is it a hierarchical decision? Is it a collective decision? And then if I disagree with somebody else that's in my community or in my um, denomination or in my religion, does that mean I'm the heretic or are they the heretic? And why do we even have to have a conversation about who's right and wrong? What if God is bigger than all of this? And you can see why it is so much easier just to sort of let go of that stuff and just try to find ways to personally attune to the presence of God as best as we can. And, you know, I think there's something to that personal, deep, intentional search for the presence of God in a way that um, isn't necessarily tied to all of this decision-making about who's right and who's wrong. One of the problems, though, that I've run into when I um, am more guided by this sort of spiritual rather than religious stuff is it, I start to notice that, like, God starts to look an awful lot like, not like me, but you know, my idea of God tends to be confirmed in when I have more personal, private practices of spiritual life. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I mean, there's still a grand mystery, and I'm not just, like, completely turned God into myself, but, you know, I don't know. If, have you experienced that? Like, the idea that the, the more um, I sort of open up the breadth of who God might be, the more I start to find confirmation bias in myself. And I have to remind myself that like, oh, you know, I might not actually have everything figured out by myself. And so I need to take a step back and I need to reassess and I need to look at, you know, history and look at theology and look at how other people have thought about faith. And suddenly I'm starting to lean on the deep wisdom of religious life as much as I am my own um, deep spiritual experiences. And so I think that's really where we're called to be, aligned with, um, with, with deep roots that are religious without being purely baggage, while also being open to our own experience of faith. This is fundamental to who we are as Wesleyan people, as Methodists. We, we hold both. You know, we, we believe earnestly in the idea of tradition and the idea of um, custom and the idea of, of these sort of deep roots of historic 
life. And we believe deeply in the Spirit's active movement in the world here and now. And so when we're, when I am most faithful, I tend to try to hold both at the same time. Not purely a spiritual being, but not purely a religious being, but instead sort of finding ways to mesh those things together so that I am reminded that I don't live in a vacuum, but instead I live in a community, and not just a community here and now, but a community that's existed for generations, that has a lot of wisdom to offer, and I can trust that I can attune to the presence of God in simple moments in nature or in deep conversation with friends or in my own exploration of religious texts and um, scripture. And that's important to hold those balances together so that we never get caught thinking my way is the only way or uh, there's no new thing that can come. You know, both of those um, spectrums at the very ends of them can be very narrow-minded. And there can, when you get to either one of those spectrums, you can get to places where people are filled with such an incredible zeal that it can be oppressive in either direction, you know, where, you know, you just sort of end up alienating ourselves because um, we don't trust the people around us, and so we push everyone away, or we become so attached to rules and regulations and all of this stuff that we end up living with a lot of judgment, both over ourselves, but also over the people who share life around us. And so I think everyone exists somewhere along that spectrum. Um, And for Paul, Paul existed on the far end of the zealous religious observance perspective, right? He was tied into a really deep and long-standing tradition of religious zeal. And we see that religious zeal go way back in scripture. People who have defended the faith, um, often violently against um, oppressive uh, oppressive empires, like in Egypt, against um, uh, invaders, like in the, the journey through the wilderness, like foreign uh, kings and gods, like we see in Kings and Chronicles. We see people come through every moment of history, every chapter of history, that zealously try to protect the people of faith and renew their faithfulness to God. One of the um, more obscure stories, but one that's really powerful that you can sort of see Paul leaning into, goes all the way back to the time when the Hebrew people, his ancestors and our ancestors of faith, who had been, uh, they were on their journey from uh, when they were slaves in Egypt, they had been released from from their slavery, and now they were just about to go into the promised land, and they come into contact with uh, another nation called Moab. And um, when they come into Moab, they actually end up getting a blessing from uh, a prophet named Balaam, who, uh, that's a whole other story, but like his donkey starts talking to him, and they have this weird conversation because the Moabite king wants this prophet to issue a curse against God's people, but God doesn't let him, and it's, it's a wild story. If you want to read it, it's in Numbers chapter 22 and all the way through chapter 24. But immediately after that, the Hebrew people sort of Uh, come into Moab, and they start, well, they start behaving pretty badly. I mean, they, you see, um, 
stories about men taking Moabite women and um, taking them off and sleeping with them. And like, you can only imagine that that probably wasn't consensual. And you have all of these people starting to like play with the idea of worshiping these Moabite gods and all of this sort of stuff. And so God speaks to Moses and says, you got to stop this. And so Moses speaks to the other leaders of the Hebrew people and says, we got to stop this. And one, a guy named Phineas, uh, he pulls out his spear. He sees uh, one of his kin, one of his people, take a Moabite woman into his tent, and Phineas follows directly behind and kills him. And what we see is that God makes Phineas's line, his lineage, the priests for the temple, because in that moment he cleansed the Hebrew people of their sin, right? So death leading to cleansing, leading to religious observance, right? And so that's a complicated story, and it's complicated for a lot of reasons, but all that to say it's a part of human history in every culture, and it just happens to be written about in our scriptures as something that happened there, and people made theological significance around it. And so what you see is Phineas being lifted up for cleansing and evil by killing the, the right sort of people so that the rest of the community would be renewed in their faithfulness. And then eventually we see that that tribe, Phineas's tribe and the people who come from him, remain as priests in the temple. And they're responsible for maintaining the space where heaven and earth meet for a full religious and political community, the Hebrew people, and then for Israel. And so this temple becomes the mediation space for God to be in communication with God's people and for God's people to be in communication with God. Heaven and earth are linked together through the temple. And so that, that's fundamental to, to Paul's understanding of what it means to be faithful, to cleanse the people and to draw the people back into the temple. Right? So what he's thinking about is that zeal that comes from Phineas to be intentional in our observance of um, righteous life, even to the point of killing other people who are a part of our tribe if they start to wander towards other gods. Right? So he's in a faithful tradition, and that's what we see in the first century when he observes the death of Stephen. He um, not only observed it, but he, he approves the stoning of one of the, the servants of Jesus, um, Stephen. Um, he's holding the cloaks for all of the other uh, people who stoned Stephen to death. Right? And so it's, again, not to, he's trying to do the right thing. He sees Jesus as another foreign god that's pulling away the faithful Israelites, pulling them away from the temple, away from the presence of God. And so he sees that as a threat, not just to a sense of livelihood, but a threat to his community, his religious community. And so he's, he's trying to do the right thing. And because he's trying to do the right thing, he's in constant prayer with God. And one of the prayers that people um, assume was probably a part of the first century rituals of prayer was a, a meditation on another weird part of the Bible, um, jumping way ahead to the book of uh, Ezekiel. Uh, if you haven't read the first chapter of Ezekiel, read it. And 
be imaginative with it. Try to vision, envision the, the, all of the figures and the movement and everything happening there. But it's, it's an incredible passage. Right before Ezekiel is called into ministry, he has a vision of these uh, angelic figures descending through a thunderstorm cloud to earth. And uh, they're carrying this cart and the cart has wheels that spin in every direction and the angels themselves have multiple different faces and they have four two full sets of wings and it's this sort of majestic wild experience and and then on that cart there's this dome of glass over it and on that dome of glass you see this um striking blue throne and on that throne Ezekiel sees the image of what appears to be a human um, sitting on this throne but shrouded in fire and coals and ember and um, that is the presence of God and so like we, we see the angels we see the cart we see the um, the, the uh, image of God sort of resting there. And so uh, for many people of faith, especially in the Hebrew tradition in the first century, they would read this first chapter of Ezekiel as a meditation practice to meditate on the presence of God. And so what scholars have assumed is that perhaps Paul was praying while he was walking on the road from uh, uh, to Damascus. And he, while he was praying, he may likely have been meditating on that chapter of Ezekiel, imagining the angels coming, imagining the storm surrounding them, imagining the faces, each of them representing a different aspect of God's created order, imagining the cart that they were carrying and the wheels that spin in unison together in every direction, up, down, left, right, forward, backwards, imagining the dome resting on top of it, imagining what that throne may have looked like, and finally trying to imagine what the very face of God might be. And to Paul's shock and amazement through his religious experiences, his um, religious customs, the order that he had built for himself. He has these customs, these intentional prayers, these cycles that have been handed down from generation to generation that allow him an opportunity to glimpse the presence of God. And what does he see sitting on the throne but Jesus of Nazareth? The man that Paul had seen as a threat to God's presence is actually the embodiment of God's presence, where heaven and earth are connected to one another in the same way that the temple was. Everything about Paul's understanding of the world is thrown upside down. It's not a conversion moment. It's an awakening moment when uh, religious custom has allowed him an opportunity of spiritual growth. His own spiritual experience now has a profound effect on his religious observance. He doesn't lose sight of his religious observance. Instead, he incorporates this incredible vision of Jesus of Nazareth, the, the, the face of the man that he watched be crucified, and he himself had participated in persecuting all of Jesus's followers as a cleansing project to get rid of all of this um, distraction from the presence of God in the temple. Paul sees Jesus as a threat right up until he is, th through meditation, confronted with Jesus's own image who cries out to Paul, why are you persecuting me?
Not why are you persecuting Stephen? Why are you allowing my followers to be wounded? Why are you supervising these things? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? All right, so not only is Jesus the image, the full presence of God, where heaven and earth meet, not only does Jesus replace Paul's understanding of temple, not only does Jesus embody the fullness of what it means to be faithful to Torah, not only does this presence of God fulfill all of the promises that God had made to Paul's ancestors and to Paul himself, Jesus identifies, this presence of God identifies himself with his followers. They're not separate. They're not below. They're equal to. So when Stephen was stoned, Jesus again was stoned. Why are you persecuting me? And so for Paul, it was his strict adherence to his religious custom that allowed him a moment of personal spiritual awakening. You can't separate those things from one another. If Paul had only been focused on getting people to follow the law and do all these things without a um, rich experience of God's presence in his prayer life, it would have just been oppression. And perhaps we see that in other aspects of religious life. But if Paul had only been devoted to the uh, his own personal spiritual experience with Jesus, I don't know that he would have been able to um, challenge his own people well. We, we need to have our feet in both camps where we can trust and rely on religious customs that have been handed down to us while remaining open to the Spirit's continued presence in our lives. And we need to be open to, to God's presence, challenging our understandings and our customs and where we um, are, uh, where our allegiances lie. We need to be open so that we can develop stronger attunement to our community and to the heritage of religious and faithful and spiritual folks that have existed through all of time. We, we need both. We need both. We need scripted prayers that we can um, recite when we don't have words. And we need to let go of words when they become a crutch that keeps us from actually experiencing God. We need rules and customs so that we have a playful, boundaried space to experience the risen Christ. And we need... and open understanding of who God is so that we don't get caught up in who's in and who's out, who's right, who's wrong. We need, we need both things. And so when I'm most grounded, I think I'm able to hold both. But I, like Paul, can easily slip from side to side. And I think that's the project of our walk of faith, to learn how to live more intentionally and more deeply connected to our religious community and to God's presence that is ever leading us forward so that all of us might experience transformation and renewal of life 
and step into strange places to be blessed by strange people, trusting that God is working in and through all of us together. So again, I'm grateful to worship with you, and I look forward to the ways that God calls us to work alongside one another. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org.